My name is Tammy Riker, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How the hell are you? Ah, uh, I guess... Good, good. I, 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 I am I am COVID free to my knowledge. And, I am uh, quarantastic. <laughs> quarantastic. All right, good. I'm glad. So so what's going on with you this week? What's going on? Anything? Uh, you know, it's been pretty pretty slow week. Nothing nothing important happening. Uh, you know, just chilling out, watching horror movies, the usual. Playing any board games? No, I actually haven't been playing any board games. No, I have not. Well, I think there's a lot of board games being played currently. Uh, Wait, you are jumping the gun right into close focus. I, I am. I am. I'm, I'm, uh, this is our, our segue. I'm leading I'm leading us in right now. But before uh, we do that, we need to say who's on the show. Oh, this gosh. Is, we have, there's a way that we do this. There, there, and so I just want to say that it's awesome cinematographer Tammy Riker. She is a legend. She's one of those people who's been around since the indie boom of the 90s. She shot pieces of April, for God's sakes. I love talking to people who uh, worked on indigent movies. Uh, she's our second since Ellen Kuras, who also shot Personal Velocity, another indigent film. Well, uh, and she shot, she's she, got a new movie right now called One Night in Miami. One Night in Miami, which is getting all kinds of plaudits and, and love and uh, and respect and is definitely an Oscar contender. And I, I hope to say she is an Oscar contender. So Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to have her on the show. And I didn't mean to jump the gun. It just seemed like such a natural segue. Well, now we can go into close focus, our George Floyd close focus segment. So what is the close focus? Oh, it has something to do with board games. Do go on. <laughs> so there was an interesting story in uh, IndieWire, essentially covering the fact that the classic board game Risk is about to become a television series. I mean, so, why not? Sure, sure, sure well, thing. I mean, if, if you do, you do you remember Risk? Risk, you had these little plastic pieces. You set them up on the board and you marched them forward to find yeah, the flag. It's not, it's not really a character driven game. There's not really characters. It's more just countries. It seems pretty thin, pretty thin basis to well, uh, thin to some people. Also, just wide open to interpretation to others. I, I guess that's true. Uh, and they have tapped no one short of the House of Cards creator, Bo Willimon. So Whoa. it's like it's, <laughs> you know, Risk. I mean, it's it's a wide open field here. It's a it's a board game. It's being turned into a television series, and they got the creator of House of Cards to step in to to make it happen. So amazing. Uh, now, what's interesting to me though is that if you thought that sort of children's toys and board games becoming movies or television series uh, was was going to end at risk, you'd be mistaken. No, mm. sir. The same people involved in Risk are also putting together uh, a television show adaption of Power Rangers. Uh, Monopoly. Okay, Power Rangers was already a TV show, a very successful show. Why not bring it back? There, well, that's what the, what's happening. Uh, but Mono uh, Monopoly, I mean, you know, I, you could do like a gritty, hard scrabble succession kind of thing out of Monopoly. Why not? You know, it was originally supposed to be about the perils of Monopoly. Like that was supposed to be it was supposed to teach people financial literacy. Instead, mm. it became a, a game that centers around greed. So great. So there's a that's there's fair. a wonderful radio documentary about Monopoly. It's worth listening to. Um, oh, I would love to hear that. 
action figure sort of franchises uh, also are turning into something uh, things right now with like uh, Action Man and G.I. Joe. And of course, Clue, which was once a movie, also now looking to become a TV series. That's an interesting idea because Clue is something that probably would be a lot of fun to turn into a movie or, or a TV series. But the movie, the original movie, which I think didn't do especially well theatrically, has been elevated to cult status over the years. And it is much beloved, rightfully so, because it is incredibly entertaining. And uh, they had the gimmick of different endings. So depending on what theater you saw it at, there was, you know, a, a different person did it in a different room. No problem there. So why do you think that there's a spate of board game uh, related things suddenly being greenlit right now? <laughs> I, I'm going to blame the pandemic. I'm going to blame it's people spending time home and not wanting to be in front of the TV set. And they go, hey, let's let's play a game. Let's play a card game. Let's get, play that a game. That would also explain uh, the upcoming Universal series uh, Sourdough Starter. That's going to be a, a real a real hit. <laughs> It. Yeah, sa- sour- sourdough starter, the motion picture. It's from the point of view of the yeast. Uh, well, well, is it uh, Lionsgate? Call me Universal. What's going? I think it's Lionsgate is doing a thing on sauerkraut. You know, and the, the, home, the home pickling movement. That's all. Did I hear right that there's a Rubik's cube movie, or did I hear a joke that there's a Rubik's cube movie? I think there is a Rubik's cube movie. I think it's actually it's a sequel to the first cube, and then sequel Hypercube. I think it's a Rubik's. It cube should now. be. It should be a sequel to Hellraiser. Maybe it can be where the cube <laughs> movies and Hellraiser overlap. Pandora's box kind of thing. So it's a, there you go. Yeah, okay. And the box. There you go. <laughs> Richard Kelly's the box. We got that. We got Hellraiser. We got Hypercube. <laughs> I don't really feel like this is a very fleshed out uh, close focus. You know, our country was almost overthrown by Duck Dynasty and uh, all kinds ne- of nearly things. successfully, too. It's like uh, yeah. it was pretty awful. And, you know, I mean, uh, if, the, if they had just had 10 times the number of people and you know, more Molotov cocktails and automatic weapons, then it might have happened. We might have. And also there are two mutations of coronavirus that spread faster than the than the strain that we've been dealing with. The vaccine rollout has not happened to have been as fast as was hoped. And uh, our president seems to be in hiding. So I think it's great that we're talking about risk and uh, action, man. I think that's perfect. I have hit a point of overload to the point of numbness to the real world. And I would love to retreat to weird ass movies. You know, the battleship movie starting to look like a great idea right now. <laughs> you know, I do have to give a tip of the hat, though, to Disney. Uh, their Disney parks, uh, the, the one in Orange County, Disneyland, very, very famous one, of course, the, the original. They've just announced it's going to be one of the first mass vaccination sites in the U.S., which I think is great. So they're going to start rolling out mass vaccinations for the people in Orange County, and they have a massive parking lot and the ability to funnel people. And uh, you know what's great is you'll be able to park in Goofy and then go get vaccinated. That's right. You can park in Goofy. I've parked in Goofy. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, Ben, I think it's about time for us just to get to the interview. Let's, let's, let's do that. Let's hop into our interview with Tammy Riker. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are here. Uh, actually, I don't even know what city you're in. We're here talking to cinematographer Tammy Riker. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tammy. Thank you. I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, so are we. Oh, okay. <laughs> Back in the before times when we weren't dealing with COVID, Ilya and I had a strict policy that we would only talk to people in the same room. And since COVID hit, we've been talking to people all over the world, which is great. But then, you know, we never know where people are. Or it's like, hey, we're talking to so-and-so in Australia or something. It's, it's a lot of fun. 
So first off, before we even get into anything, I kind of want to, I just want to drill down and get sort of your central philosophy before we even get into your background. And I used to ask the question, when you read a script, do you see it in composition or do you see it in lighting? I've kind of retired that question, but I'm interested in asking like, when you look at a script, what are you seeing? What are the first things that start kind of turning the words into cinematography ideas for you? When I, okay, so when I read a script, I mean, they're all so different, but uh, definitely I'm looking at how I'm going to make some beautiful, authentic performances, Mm -hmm. especially for a film like One Night in Miami, which is all about performance. But, you know, after you're reading through and thinking about the performance and the whole the whole message of the film, and then you start your mind starts turning into breaking down locations and nights and stage and imagining how it's going to be divided up and crowd scenes. You know, I would definitely say that's how I start breaking it down in my head. And then, you know, I, I form my own ideas but i really like to speak to the director first mm-hmm. you know it's interesting you you're you're expected to come into these meetings and tell you know how you would shoot the film but you really need something from the director on what their vision is it's kind yeah. of an interesting little dance when you go in for that initial meeting because you you want to come in with lots of ideas but you don't want to go off you need to know what their vision is or you know do they see it is it pretty gritty is it fantasy is it super heightened reality yeah (laughs) for one night in miami i came in with a very uh very saturated lookbook very colorful saturated dark you know well, let, let's talk about One Night in Miami because you have that coming out that's that's coming out from Amazon here in a minute, which uh, there's a lot to unpack about that movie and a lot of things that kind of hit me from uh, different directions. Firstly, you're working with Regina King, who has some directing experience for sure, but is probably best known to most audiences as, as an actor, you know, kind of a top shelf kind of an actor. You're working with uh, material that began its life as a stage play and it's all period and it's all people that like historical figures that we've all we've all seen the real people and we've all seen them portrayed in movies there's just so much to unpack about it but let's kind of start with how it started did you ever even see a production of the play or did you come to it as a movie script for the first time I came to it as a movie script. I had never seen the play. I mean, after mm-hmm. when we were in production, the gaffer and I both asked to see a copy of the play and Kemp and Regina were happy to show it to us, but it really didn't have any relevance to what we were doing. We just wanted to see how they put it up and what the lighting, you know, just how yeah. it looked on stage. Uh, but it was very much in a dark space, you know, a blank space. Well, I, I'm just interested because a lot of the play from what I gather, or uh, correct me if I'm wrong, perhaps all of the play takes place in that hotel room or the majority of it. And you have a great deal of the movie uh, unfolding in the hotel room, but obviously you've opened it up and the playwright came back to do the screenplay adaptation. So it goes out of the hotel room and stuff like that. But like what percentage of the movie would you say was shot just in that hotel room with those characters? Uh, over half of the film is probably 60% of the film is in the Hampton House hotel room. How do you go about opening up the camera blocking and the actor blocking and constructing it so it doesn't feel like you're stuck in a room, I guess is the real question. So for the film, we had we actually didn't have much rehearsal time because Kingsley wasn't, everyone was, you know, we had these four incredible actors, but they had very busy schedules. Mm. 
So everyone didn't come together until a few days before the first day of shooting. Oh, really? Yes, which is incredible considering these performances. And because each of them had other commitments, they were coming and going. So oh, really? what you would love to do, of course, is start at the beginning, you know, the first scene in the hotel room and work your way, go in linear time in film time. But that didn't happen because the actors, Kingsley was uh, in a film in Toronto. Everyone had something else to do. Oh, <laughs> Leslie wow. had performances. So it was a very interesting schedule. We did shoot all of the hotel room right up front. What we decided to do in the blocking was there was really no way to break up these scenes. It was, you know, these daunting 10 page scenes of literally all dialogue just page after page. And I had presented to, in our initial talks, Regina and I had talked about, we wanted to keep the camera always floating and moving and float from character to character. So I came up, it's something that I used to use all the time is a jib arm and, but, but not on a hot head operated by the operator, just underslung on a Ronford head or Weaver Stedman head, we used a Ronford. And so that the operator could, you get a pretty good arc, you get three or four feet to slide back and four, three or four feet up and down so that we could drift between characters and always keep the camera moving. So we had this small hotel room and two gigantic 12 foot jib arms that would poke through every hole window behind every picture. <laughs> there was a hidey hole, you know. Well, that was actually could... my next question was, was it a set or was that a, a real hotel room? Because yeah, it was, was a it. set. Yeah. Yeah. So you could, you could fly out walls if you had. To. Yes. But I mean, we were on it. Yeah. But you tried to do it as economically as possible because it takes time to yeah. fly the walls and seal it up again. And we would start by shooting, in fact, most to see, you know, we shot them all, all the way through. So we would do these epic 10 minute, 15 minute masters. And then that would inform our coverage and the coverage also, we would shoot the entire scene. Experiencing mm -hmm. Kingsley's performance is so intense. Like you couldn't really just say, you know, let's pick it up from this line or just do this over the shoulder they actually loved, you know, ramping into the entire scene. So we, it was fascinating way, you know, after the first couple of times we're like, well, we're doing it. This is, you know, <laughs> it, just, it was so like intuitive that that's the way it had to be done. And then we would have our two cameras and there were so many things that were discovered and like moments that, you know, beautiful moments that happened as camera drifted right or left, or we would always meet back after each take, Regina and I, I was in the DIT tent, she was at her director's monitor, and then discuss with the operators, the operators were all on headset, where we saw moments that we could drift from character to character, or, or rack back to the mirror, or rack deeper to a character that was in the kitchen as opposed to the bedroom. It also gave the actors a lot of freedom to move around. And, you know, Regina's very much an actor's director and she wanted him to have that freedom, not to, you know, there were no marks. We would do her rehearsals and place some marks, but they were all gone by the time we were shooting. <laughs> so it, was, it was a really intense, beautiful orchestra of everyone working together. Cause it's a very long take for like an operator to remember or everyone focus yeah. puller, boom, you know, you, you do a take and you'd run back and you're like, okay, remember halfway through when he says this line, I want you to rack back, you know, and that's happening seven minutes into the take. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I had a fantastic crew that everyone was just so into the film and 
the material. So when you're saying that you would do like these 10 minute scenes, I mean, a 10 page day is a pretty busy day on on any movie. Would, were you able to do them in one day for these longer scenes? We would get, yes. What we would do is usually get one side of the room done and then the next day we'd flip around to the reverse side. Okay, so we, you, you- Yeah, yeah. Still, that's five page days, isn't That's not, uh, that's, oh, that's they would, nothing yeah. to sneeze at, especially with this kind of dialogue and these kinds of performances where you, you, you know, you really have to, it's there to let that dialogue sing and to let the performances go and you can't, you can't rush those actors. Uh, I'm always interested when people work with a director. Now, again, Regina King has a lot of directing experience, so it's not like this wasn't her first time behind the camera. But when people are working with people who are primarily known as actors, did she come to the table with a lot of visual ideas and references and specific shots and shot lists? Did she ask you to kind of uh, lead that front? Like, how did the two of you split those responsibilities? She had a lot of definite, you know, ideas. And then I would say as far as how we were going to accomplish the movement and the blocking, that she would look to me and we'd work really closely with that. But mm. as far as knowing the type of film that she wanted to make, that was, and there were certain, you know, we spent a lot of time in prep planning the transitions you know, because it was, you knew in the film, you know, that the, the beginning wasn't going to end up as the, as the end. And, you know, it, sometimes in editing, you plan these transitions and then the movie turns upside down in the cut. That yeah. wasn't going to happen with this film. It was definitely going to, you know, stick to the script form. And uh, so we spent a lot of time on transitions together and drawing frames. And we really, we only storyboarded the fight scenes. Mm -hmm it was very important to Regina to stick to the historical references. And actually we loved doing like, uh, doing the exact historical reference, for, like um, Cassius in the swimming pool, Cassius Clay in the swimming yeah. pool and the diner, that's the, the photograph from Howard Bingham or Jim on the set of The Dirty Dozen, that's the exact photograph. Johnny, when Sam is singing on Johnny Carson, you know, that's the, you know, the shots aren't exactly the same, but the set is the same. One thing I want to ask you about, too, is uh, and, and maybe to a degree, this is a production design question, but I, I'm interested in how you approach it is like I feel like some period pieces kind of look like the the Life magazine version of that time period. And some period pieces look like we just dropped ourselves into that world. And this felt like a lived in world to me. Was that something that was important to Regina and you? And is, was it something that you kind of fought for? And how did you how do you go about creating that lived in feeling in a movie? Because it's, it's not gritty grainy or anything like that but it, it feels like a movie made in the time period as opposed to a movie made about the time period if that makes sense well that was yeah we were we really wanted there was a lot of time spent on the attention to detail in the hotel room about the level of dirt and grime and you know the comparison with inside and outside and the the fountain blue compared to the hampton house and i would definitely say that the men just carried that through too in there mm -hmm. The way there's there's times in the hotel, it feels almost like you're a fly on the wall. You know, yeah. you're just you're there. The camera's there to observe this conversation, and uh, that was definitely a choice. I mean, I would say also the the choice of camera lighting and keeping it very rich and saturated helped us feel more like we had dropped in. 
So just one more question about the hotel room scenes, which is because you're organically creating this shooting plan based around the actors' performances and the blocking that they came up with on the day, were there overarching arc-related considerations like we're going to use longer lenses the further we are into it or the quality of the movement is going to change? Did the two of you kind of create a a way to build an arc into that storyline? Well, in the way that the camera stayed wider in the beginning of the hotel room and it got tighter and tighter to where in that scene when Jim Brown and Cassius are talking into the mirror and we're using the reflection and the Mm -hmm. over the shoulders, those were some of our tighter shots. And there was definitely a conscious choice. We wanted when they go to the roof, that was a they were busting out to freedom. They needed air. You know, the room was getting very claustrophobic. So that we decided to shoot all handheld. And that we actually shot, Regina and I, neither one of us wanted to shoot on green screen because that became, it it seemed so simple. And then it became a bigger, bigger issue because if we were to shoot, we wanted to shoot outside on a real roof. Mm -hmm. But then if we shot on a real roof, the actors had to be on wires. And we were like, no way could they, you know, move around like that and be on wires. So with the production designer, He came up with a great idea to build the roof in the parking lot outside the stages on uh, shipping containers. Oh, wow. So it was about 12 feet in the air and it was the size of the roof and he did a beautiful tar, you know, tar paper top on it. And then as we were building it, it, you know, we still had the wire issue. So he made a black hand railing. At first, we were all so disappointed. And then you, when you see it, it just disappears. You don't even, (laughs) because once again, without that railing, it was they would have had to been on wires or anchored or something. So that scene was, uh, that came about through lots of discussions and Regina and I just pushing and pushing that it couldn't be on a stage. It had to be outside in the air and uh, at night, all night. And it was, you know, New Orleans in January and we had, uh, you know, one night it was misty rain and next night the fog rolled in and Mm. (laughs) it worked. And then (laughs) they put in the skyline the visual effects. Oh, it looked amazing. What kind of considerations for you went into portraying these well-known historical figures? Well, the camera and lens choice. When I first met with Regina, I had just finished The Old Guard, which was on the Alexis 65. And Mm -hmm. Regina had used the Alexis 65 on um, If Beale Street Can Talk, that she won the Academy Award for. So I you know, came to her and I was like, we have to shoot large format with the prime DNAs. It's just going to be incredible. And, you know, we were a $12 million movie. We didn't really have the money to do that because when you shoot large format, it's not just the cost of the camera. It's all the way down the pipeline. That amount of media is tripled, quadrupled. So everything takes longer. Everything takes more drives. Everything's more expensive. But I went to Airy Rental in LA and presented my case and really was just like, please, can you help us? I just know it's going to be incredible for this film. And it really, I just can't imagine not using that camera now. So we use the Prime DNAs, which have a very beautiful fall off when you shoot wide open and bronze glimmer glass, number one bronze glimmer glass that really softened the image and in the bronze glimmer glass it's it's subtle but it definitely gave it that richness and that glow and it looked beautiful on their skin Uh, totally the the skin tones were amazing uh do you see like it sounds like you like working with a large format 
Do you see projects where you would go back to uh, like a super 35 size sensor or what, you know, gauge film? I actually, I love it. I, the next project I'm going to do is with the Sony Venice Mm -hmm. because it, there was a deal on it and there was availability. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I, after falling in love with the, the large sensor, I really, another thing that was incredible for this film with the large sensor was in the color timing in the DI that uh, there was so much latitude in, in that hotel room you know, you can imagine they're moving all around that room. There was mm-hmm. always one dark corner where the gaffer and I would be at the DIT tent just being like, <laughs> not that corner, don't, don't go in that don't corner. <laughs> <laughs> don't look that way. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens, but you could pull out so much. It was really incredible. And, to, you know, all four of them have different skin color, you know, each one. Yeah. And you really, you were able to, you know, Kingsley would sometimes be too hot if he walked in someone else's light, you know, you could just, it was incredible, the balancing and the number of windows you could put in and it never got harsh. You could also really crush down the 6K Mm-hmm. And even though it was going to air 4K, it didn't, sometimes it gets this hard look to it and it stayed really soft and beautiful whenever we would crush anything down or pull anything out. I mean, there's a certain point where you can't pull it out, but it gave us a lot of latitude in the hotel room. Wow, that sounds amazing. It'd be cool to kind of look at the before and after of that kind of stuff just to see because the way you're describing sort of the spontaneity and uh, we've talked to several DPs recently who talk about working in that kind of a spontaneous way, which means you're not in control of how, like you're saying, you're not in control of exactly where an actor is going to land. So you can't fine tune the light exactly every single place. And that means you have to uh, rely on the DI to kind of get the look that you're going for. Yeah. And also the knowing when you're sitting there, I can take that down. I can pull that up, you know, knowing like they're in a groove. Do I stop everything and add another light or switch something around or, you know. (laughs) Or do you let them go like emotionally exhaust themselves? Exactly. Do I let the the performance, you know, and that is the most important thing in this film was the performance. So it was really knowing, you know, how much you're going to tweak between takes, you know, am I going to, you know, there's a little hot spot right above his head, but not touching his head. I know I can take that out. So I'm not going to stop everything in between takes and put a flag up. And that's what happens when you're organically doing these performances, you're, you're seeing something that's like, you know, oh, I need to take that out. And then making that decision in the moment, it's all about time and making your day. This isn't so much a cinematography question, but I think it ultimately is. When you were making it, was everybody on the set aware how timely the material was? Oh, yes. It, we, you know, we had an incredible crew. We had 70% diversity in our crew mm-hmm. in New Orleans. And everyone was just in love with the script, the, with the acting, with Regina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, there was one moment when... We were shooting and the Dolly Grip, who was a huge Ali fan, and he was so into the moment that he, Kingsley was giving one of his speeches, you know, you're either you're, you draw a line in the sand and he said, that's right. And then he was like, oh my God, I just said that out loud. <laughs> like you were that into it. There was just chills sometimes. You could just, the silence afterwards it was so great. 
Let's kind of back up and just kind of talk about your background. I always like to ask people, like, when was the first moment in your life that it occurred to you that being a cinematographer was a job and it was something that you could do? Uh, I started in, well, I, I had my, got my first still camera when I was 12. So mm -hmm. I stills was really my passion. I spent all my high school hours in the dark room and, you know, won the, the, the still photography prize in high school <laughs> and decided to, I applied to NYU to go to film school, but I was still very torn that, you know, between stills and film. So I would say in film school, I think it was my third year in film school that I did an internship on a film called Forever Lulu mm -hmm. that Hannah Shigula was the star and Lisa Rensler shot it. So it was a low budget film. And that was the first time I was like, this is, this is definitely what I want to do, you know, watching her work. And if you think about, you know, this is a long time ago, <laughs> it's like 1985 and how now we're just like, Oh, there's, you know, have to get more women and this, mm. and this was 1985. And that was my first film set I'd ever been on. And a woman was shooting it, you know? And uh, after that, I started shooting lots of student films, especially for, I got a hookup with Columbia grad students and, that's where I met Lisa Cholodinko. I shot her grad film and Alex oh, wow. Michelle. The first time that I think I was aware of your work was in 1995, and that was The Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love, which uh, there, there was a, a small indie uh, art house. I'm, I'm from Orlando, Florida. There was an indie art house theater that I've talked about on the podcast called The Enzian, still there. And I believe I saw that movie there. I love talking to people who were kind of pioneering in the indie world of the 90s because to me, it, it's almost taken on a mythical uh, stance. And you worked on several uh, noteworthy indie films, including uh, High Art was another one that, that people know really well. Can you just talk about what it was like at that time and what, what, what it was like working on these movies that were kind of telling stories nobody had really ever told before. Right. And, and also telling stories that nobody had really told before and also working in this very exciting way where, you know, I think uh, Two Girls in Love was like $50,000 budget, if you can yeah. even imagine. You know, you were making these films with nothing and they were finding an audience and playing in theaters and going to Sundance and high art was 500000 you know. That was all it was? Yes. Oh. And in Pieces of April was 150,000, like <laughs> Well, you're kind of like running on a, on a slightly parallel track to someone else who we ha have had on the show, Ellen Curis, who is right. one, of, one of my favorite DPs. I, I talk about her all the time. I love her work. And you both ended up working with Indigent, which I feel like Indigent is like a weird chapter in filmmaking that did some just amazing stuff. Pieces of April was Indigent and, and uh, Ellen uh, had shot Personal Velocity also. Right. for indigent and so indigent was basically making hundred thousand dollar movies or like super low budget movies on mini dv and that was like a super new thing to to be doing and they were getting major stars like pieces of april obviously uh stars katie holmes it just it, it seems like especially in today's world if you said like hey i'm going to give you you know all these huge movie stars and an iphone to make a movie with you know it, it would be a little bit odd but uh, but i feel like indigent really made it work can you it talk did. about it it was such an amazing time where I mean when I tell people now I'm like you don't the, the camera
camera fit in the palm of my hand because pieces of april still people love that movie it's their thanksgiving go-to you know yeah. <laughs> they love to watch it and i'm like when katie holmes was walking towards me i had a choice between keeping the focus where it was or hitting the autofocus button but i had to make sure <laughs> to hit it again when she stopped or she would not be in focus. <laughs> it was, I mean, the iPhone is a thousand times better than, I mean, wild, you know, like you, that we made these ads, but the whole thing that was so amazing. And I just got another check for pieces of April. Whoa. Yes, this is how many, you know, 20 years later. And Gary Winnix, who created Indigent, his whole, the whole package, the whole design was that each person in the crew would own a percentage of the movie. Oh, so that's amazing. So he worked for like, I don't know, $20 a day, $50 a day, something very, very minimal. But every person got a percentage, you know? The gaffer got, you know, uh, a quarter of a point. I got, you know, three quarters of a point. And, and it was divided up. And we've all worked on those movies where they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, if the movie makes any money, you'll get a check. You never do. <laughs> uh, it's incredible that still over, you know, that, that, you know, Gary's passed away, Indigent doesn't exist but someone is still taking care of this and sending us our checks. Like it's wild. Yeah. I, well, and I, I feel like in a sense, like, you know, I mentioned the iPhone thing. I feel like, you know, there's any number of like crazy low budget cameras and probably the average person could get their hands on gear that is better, obviously, than the mini DV gear was in the early aughts. But, you know, having the kind of talent and the kind of attracting the stars. That, yeah. yeah. And the directors, frankly, who also. also right. Also Peter Hedges. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I feel like the the time was right because, you know, cinematographers like yourself had been working with lower budgets. It, it, it's almost like America's version of Dogma 95 in a sense, where it's like you got people who were working really hard to make stuff look beautiful. And then you were given gear that doesn't really make stuff automatically look beautiful and asked, how can you do your job? You, yeah. And each one was so different, you know, and also doing their own hair and makeup. And we all rode in the same van together. <laughs> if we had a van, you know? it was so, exciting. I love those experiences. It, you know, so a lot, a lot of times when I'm looking at kind of the arc of a DP's career, I see like, you know, they, they did a bunch of shorts nobody ever heard of that were probably student films or, you know, very independent shorts that went on the festival circuit or small features. And then suddenly they they pop. But it seems like, you know, when and maybe, maybe the answer is the incredibly true adventures of two girls in love for you. But like, was there a point where where suddenly you you kind of went up to the next level? Because it, it, instead of it being like a giant quantum leap, you you know, it's like I see after Pieces of April, you worked on the HBO series Carnival. You did <laughs> Mr. Woodcock. So, you know, you were constantly working upward. But talk about just sort of how, how you developed the career that you have. The high art was definitely, you know, a career changer that mm -hmm. went to Sundance. It's, you know, I still run into people all the time who love that film or say to me, you know, that film is made me want to be in the movie business that oh, wow. film made me want to be a director that film you know <laughs> so that definitely and that was blood sweat and tears I mean that was a lot of love and energy that went into that you know back in that that indie world where you know where you worked 18 hour days and uh it really became your whole life but it was fun everyone was really young and excited <laughs> <laughs> and then uh 
Carnival and winning the ASC award, uh, being nominated, sorry, not winning, but being the first woman to ever be nominated for an ASC award, that was a big deal. Um, for Carnival? Yes. Yeah, that, for the that, I feel like that show is so underrated. I, I loved that show and it was on the air and it just had an amazing, amazing look to it. Like it was, it, it, there, I've never seen anything like it before or since. All right. Well, I, th- I think that that's a great place to leave it. Before we go, is there a place people can see your work or interact with you online, uh, social media or your website or anything like that? Uh, sure. You can see my work at DDA. That's my agent at their Dispoto. Uh, the reel is on that. And on Instagram, I'm Tammy Riker 123 All right, cool. Yeah, well, I, I'll definitely subscribe to your Instagram and uh, hopefully you'll get a few more subscribers. And thank you so much for coming on. Amazing work. I, I hope that uh, you, you get all the Oscars for this one. It's uh, great work and uh, very exciting to talk to you. Thank you. So that was Tammy Riker. Everybody, please go check out One Night in Miami and look for it at the Oscars. It's a pretty amazing film. I, I, I love a, a good adaptation from a from a play that kind of figures out an interesting uh, way to, to go about doing it. It's on Amazon Prime. Go check it out. Definitely. Definitely check it out. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our famed short end time of the show. What's, what's your favorite. short end? What's your obsession okay. of the week? This week? I blew it last week because I already mentioned it, but I feel like it's yet another podcast, but this one's so great. I mean, all, every podcast I mention, I'm obsessed with. I, I uh, listened to the new episode of, of the Lolita podcast that dropped yesterday as we're recording this. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, so this week I want to talk about Dead Eyes. Holy hmm. crap. When you get done listening to our podcast... Go subscribe and listen to Dead Eyes. Start at the beginning. So Dead Eyes is by and starring a man named Connor Radcliffe, who's an actor. He's a mostly comedic actor, improviser kind of guy. And in 1999, he was cast in a bit part in Band of Brothers for HBO. And then he was fired by Tom Hanks. Mm. And when his representation or whatever reached out to find out why he was fired, the answer that they got was because he had dead eyes. (laughs) <laughs> and it has been over 20 years and Connor cannot let this go. Oh, wow. And, he, and he's a pretty successful actor. He was on Veep. He has like lots of famous uh, friends and stuff. So he gets people like Seth Rogen on there. He finds the actor who actually played the part in the scene. And it was literally like a two or three line character. It, it was it wasn't like he, he lost out a, a big role. It was a tiny, <laughs> tiny role. But he was fired by Tom Hanks. And, you know, Tom wow. Hanks, notoriously the nicest man, notoriously like the nicest living man. <laughs> like I was watching him on Colbert a few days ago and I'm like, this man just like makes the world a better place. And what's interesting about it, too, is he does this without making Tom Hanks the villain, even though Tom Hanks is clearly like his bet noir. <laughs> he just it's, it's a brilliant podcast because we all have that thing that that's stuck in our craw and we can't let it go. And this is that for him. Mm. And so he brings people like Ira glass and, and does does he ask them to describe his dead eyes? He does ask people (laughs) if he has dead eyes, he brings back, he goes back because he was living in England at the time. He brings back at one point his agent in England who set him up with the audition (laughs) and her assistant and on and on and on. 
I, I'm just imagining. And now I've never heard this. I'm, I, I don't I don't know anything about it, but I can just imagine now the agent saying like, yeah, yeah, you do rather have dead eyes. And uh, <laughs> I knew I knew when I sent you out, they might yeah. kick you back to me for those dead eyes. But I'm assuming it's, it didn't go that way at all. Not at all. So. <laughs> um, and I like your one third attempt at a British accent. It was very good. So, that was not. It was a zero attempt. <laughs> I, I, if you if you want me to do a British accent and really embarrass myself, that can happen. <laughs> and uh, everyone who knows me, <laughs> who actually has a British accent, is going to be like, oh no, please, man, please, no, the, no, please stop. <laughs> um, it's so cool though because it's like he hits this thing from every angle and I do feel like this podcast is on a collision course with Tom Hanks himself but I also feel like once he gets Tom Hanks on this podcast it's over he can't keep like, doing um, it no one else is going to talk about his but, dead eyes uh, you know he brings on some pretty well known people in the comedy world and the acting world and stuff like that and uh, it, it's does it's, he go up to anyone and say do I, does, do I have dead eyes does he go up and actually like ask not, people not, not as such no okay. But uh, it's a podcast where the you're laughing with him. He understands his obsession and uh, he's digging into it and he's really funny. I think it's an interesting lens into show business because, you know, we all work in this industry where your success or failure are often predicated by some somebody that Random. you've never met and <laughs> will and who maybe who you've known who they were your whole life or maybe not, you know, their whim. On a whim, they they say you may pass or you may not, and it changes your whole life, and it's kind of about that. And everybody in every part of this business, how many people have we had on the show who are like, I fell into being a cinematographer by mistake, and you're like, really? Because I know people who bust their fucking asses at it, and it is really really hard to get anywhere at it. And I'm not I'm not slagging anyone who kind of fell into it, but holy crap! And and people say the same thing about directing and acting and writing and stuff like that and uh connor uh, is clearly somebody who puts a lot of effort into this and put, and invested a lot of himself into being an actor and so it really really crushed him when it happened and, and he's sort of doing this podcast almost to cleanse himself of that shame and it's uh it's 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 such a perfect use of podcasting as a format. I, I I'm looking at the cover art right now for Dead Eyes, and I think they they missed a real opportunity. They could have done like a cartoon character with X's for eyes. That would have really been Dead Eyes, you know. Well, dead. maybe they listen to our podcast and they'll go back and revise their art. <laughs> I uh, would have done uh, skulls for pupils. But, skulls you know, for pupils. Oh, you're yeah, right. That that would have been that would have been pretty yeah. good. I mean, yeah. there's. There's any number of ways you could have taken dead eyes. Anyway, uh, definitely check it out. I know I did a podcast last week with the Lolita podcast and then this podcast. But hey, it's COVID times. What else are you doing? Listen to some podcasts. <laughs> uh, indeed. Indeed. This is the time for it. Board games, podcasts. Sourdough starters. <laughs> Sauerkraut. <laughs> yes. All I, uh, of that. <laughs> I, I tried my hand at gardening and I have the corpses of several tomato plants to show for it. Anyway. <laughs> I, I made some very successful pickled peppers. Nice. Yeah. I was very Peter Pipery. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben, my short end this week, it's almost territory that I've already, you know, trod over last month, but it's another lens. You have another podcast, I've got another lens. Some of the best lenses out there certainly for the money are made by the fine company Tokina and the Love Vista Tokina series. Lenses. Oh my god, the Vista series is ridiculous. It's easily competes with lenses costing 5-6 times uh, the price. And they announced uh, today, actually, a new focal length. And it's kind of like a big deal, new focal length. But it is a big deal. It's a really popular focal length. It's a focal length that only really sort of exists in 
better, more comprehensive sets that were designed for cinema, and it is the 65 millimeter lens. A 65 millimeter lens slots in between a 50 and a 75 or an 85, but myself, it's it's like an all-time personal favorite. It's longer than a 50. It feels a little more telephoto. It's got sort of like the portrait characteristics you want, but at the same time, it's not too long. A lot of times 85s, even 75s can feel a little too long. Let me tell you, a set that is like 25, 35, 40, 65, and like maybe a 100 or 105. It is an incredible set. And uh, you can now make that out of Tokina. You pay a little bit extra for some of these other focal lengths because they're not part of the main set. But at 7,500 bucks, the lens is just dynamite and it's unreal. And for people out there who were look, looking for like the bargain, super premium rental house quality, shoot anything kind of uh, set of lenses. I mean, they're, they're big, but they also cover everything. They'll cover, you know, the Alexa 65. They'll cover everything. They're super fast at T15. Nice. I mean, we're just talking about like super premium lenses. If you're in the super premium lens market, uh, the Vistas just got even more interesting. Can I ask an unrelated lens question? Ooh, yeah. Unrelated. Love it. Go for it. I remember when I was in college in Florida and at Panavision Orlando, they did a demonstration with this guy who had created a lens called a Fraser lens. Sure. Are you familiar with the Fraser lens? Oh, yeah. Is that thing still around? It is, but uh, my understanding is there was some sort of patent lawsuit or something that may have taken uh. place and it sort of uh, kind of fell out of fashion for a while. It was a slow lens. But it yeah, was sort of it a, needed a lot of light, but it also was like a zero distortion, kind of a weird snorkel lens. Like it was on like a weird pivoting thing. It and was. And you could use it to do like extreme macro cinematography. So you could have and, and, and maintain depth of field. So you, I remember they had like what looked like a guy stepping out of a car and then walking over into the foreground and picking it up. And it was a matchbox car. Yeah, you could um, also swivel the image. That was kind of yeah. like the, the interesting trick of it. Uh, trick of it, but it had a bunch of accessories and a bunch of things you could extend it, and you could, you know, turn it into a probe lens. And there was like a low angle prism, and there was a bunch of other stuff. It was it was the trick lens. It was, that was the whole thing. It was like, oh, you know, you need to do special tricks. This was this was the thing. And I don't remember. We should do a thing about trick lenses at some point because there's there's so many. Uh so many. I mean, there's stuff like that. There's things like shift and tilt lenses. There's things like lens babies. And, uh, you know, like all, all of these, there's outside of like the perfect pristine glass, like the Tokina that you're talking about. There's so many interesting lenses that create kind of special effects and they kind of come and go out of fashion. But then I, I feel like after they're trendy, you know, you give it five years and now it's just like it's a brush in your palette, but it's not or a, that's a terrible analogy. But you know what I mean? It's it's, it's yet another tool that you can use to make kind of an interesting image. And, you know, I always wonder why people don't use some of them more often. Like, I feel like there was there was a moment in the 90s where shift and tilt was everything. And now you don't really see it as much. I know they're still around, but. The Fraser lens, if I recall, like it had a patent and then that patent was nullified by a judge. It was like it was a whole thing. It, whole, it became oh, a man. thing. So, yeah, it was like a whole a whole uh, drama unfolded with Mr. Frazier. I mean, he literally was there to demonstrate it and was talking about how he he uh, invented the lens in his garage. And he had like a two by four with pieces of clay on it. And he was just moving <laughs> lenses around until he got the effect he wanted. And I'm, I, I remember being like, ah, yeah, I guess lenses probably do start out like, in you know, proof of concept low tech like that specialty lenses are really a thing and there are some homebrew sort of stuff out there or slightly more than homebrew that people kind of create in their garages or slightly beyond garages and uh some of them are really cool some of them are complete crap so you know it's uh, uh one, one brand that literally calls itself dog shits lenses th- that's true they've since sort of renamed their name but uh you know that that original moniker Is it was dog like, poop lenses 
No, that that would have been better. But no, the the guy stuck his own name on there. He calls uh-huh. him. Yeah. So, but but yes, that was the that was the th- the claim for a long time. They were like old Russian lenses that someone like garbaged up even more and then you know sold. That was kind of the whole thing. So. And then they came up with better lenses. And then I think when they came up with better lenses, like, well, is it really fair for us still to be calling it this? So they, they changed the name. So anyway, so, so Ben, let's thank some people. Sure. Let's start by thanking Alana Cody, who kicks all the ass and gets us some of these amazing interviews. And uh, to those of you who like the people that we're interviewing, like Alana deserves 100% of the credit for going, you know, going out and reaching out to these people. We have some great interviews coming up and it's all Alana. For those of you who are keeping score, this is actually the third episode in seven days. We had an episode like Wednesday, then we had another episode like on Sunday, and now there's another episode coming out Wednesday. So it's going to be three episodes in seven days. So we're, we're really stocking you up on the Cinematography Podcast, and that's because of Alana kicking all the butt. It is. It's great. It also you know keeps me off the street where I would most <laughs> assuredly catch COVID. Uh, we should uh, thank Ben Katz for making us sound like less a couple of chodes than we actually are. Wow. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for calling us a couple of chodes. <laughs> great. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, yes, and thanks, Ben Katz. You you did a great job making us not sound chody. So. Oh, hopefully, <laughs> we say this before we give him the audio, and yeah, then, then, uh, we, then we, it comes we also, back and we yeah, sound no, horrible. <laughs> he just adds adds uh, subliminal choding. Then uh, we we definitely need to thank uh, Kazal Atrakshi, who uh, we're reasonably sure is not listening to this episode, but maybe he is. Who knows. Kay's created 100% of the music that you heard in this episode, and you can find everything Kay's at www.musicbykays.com, and you should, and you should hire him, and you should email him and tell him how awesome his music is on the podcast. Yeah, and then tell him to also listen to the podcast. You should, you should chide him for not listening, chide a chode, that's, that's what we'll be doing. (laughs) Anyway. Where can uh, people find you, Ben? You can find me at benrockonline.com for reasons. Oh, yeah, for, yes, for reasons we uh, discussed in episodes uh, 9 through 34. So. <laughs> uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, and most of the social medias I, I tend to be there at Ilya Friedman. And so. please like and subscribe. It's really, it just doesn't take any, any, it doesn't cost you any money and takes 15 seconds. Like and subscribe. Hey, if you want to get carried away, uh, say something nice to us uh, about us on the, uh, on the, on the Apple store or wherever you're listening to us, because that helps people find us if you like this kind of thing. And if you go to our Facebook page and uh, leave a comment on the 60 stories, about 30 seconds uh, post, which is up there and, and getting several, uh, several comments right now, you could find yourself winning a copy of the book. We're going to give that away really soon. It's a goddamn great book and you should do it right now. So do that. Yeah. Facebook.com forward slash Cinepod. C-I-N-E-P-O-D. That's where you'll find us. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, thank you very much. And we will see you next week, if not before, at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.